Good morning, everyone. Oh. Um, this isn't part of the sermon, so this is free. Um, we're in the middle of worship this morning, and we're coming to the end of it. And uh, we did the last song, and that um, is a new song for us as a church, but I watch a lot of you sing it, and I have a feeling you've heard it on the radio or something like that before, because everyone seems to engage in it. Um, we have an issue with songs. I, I really believe this, that we sing songs because we like the melody, we like the phrasing or the rhyming, or if you're like me and you play rhythm guitar, you like the chord progressions and what they all sound like in our head. And there are songs that we sing that we have no idea what the verses actually are saying. I mean, you know this, right? There's songs, I, I could list a bunch of secular songs that we all have different verses for uh, because we think it says one thing and it actually uh, it was written another way. Uh, and in worship, we can sing songs. And we, we belt out the words and we don't really think about it. Um, but when we were singing this song, this last song today, the Lord really spoke to me in the midst of it. And I know over our church, over many of you here, over our community, uh, here in DeKalb and beyond, um, we deal with stuff. I know there's a high level of fear, a high level of anxiety, a high level of depression. I hear that continually. Um, I know with kids today, uh, there's more depression than, and anxiety than we remember. And I don't know if it's just because we're better at diagnosing it or if it's just what's happening in our society. Um, and and I'm, I don't want to disregard or, or, or put, you know, talk about any counseling or treatment. That, that stuff's all good and it has its place. But as believers, there's something else for us that should be over and above that. And as we were singing this song, this song isn't a song. This song is a declaration. It is a prayer. You know, I want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and anxiety. I want to speak the name of Jesus over depression. I want to speak the name of Jesus in my streets, over my family. Think about what we're singing here. We're making a declaration that we're calling God's kingdom into existence here. At this time, in this place, now. And we're saying no to the work of the enemy, here and now. And so when we sing this song, and I don't know if we're ever going to sing it again or, or what have you, but when we sing this song, this shouldn't just be like a song that we're singing with a really cute, cute melody and a driving beat as it goes into the chorus and all this other stuff. This is a declaration that you should literally be screaming over your kids and family and our community and our country. If we did this, instead of all the other stuff we do, I think we'd see a tremendous difference in this world. That's just my two cents that I was thinking uh, as, as we were singing this. And I want to challenge you as we go into worship down the road next week or whenever you do it. Words have meaning. A lot of meaning. And as we sing this, take those words and, and, and speak them over your kids. As you're singing the song, speak them over your kids, speak them over your grandkids, Speak them over your, your relatives, your brothers and sisters. Speak them over your neighbors. This stuff has meaning. It's not just 
words, which means. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence this morning as we dig into your word. Lord, just begin to speak to us this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Let your word transform us. Let it change us. Let it bring us life. We welcome you here this morning. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All summer long, we've been looking at rhythms. This idea that we should have rhythms in our life, in our spiritual life, in our church life. And you know what? We all do have rhythms in our life. And, and I times don't even think we realize it. They're things that we do naturally, that we don't even give much thought to. I wake up every morning about the exact same time, even if I don't set an alarm. I've done that for years. I get up. I go to the bathroom. I walk out. I feed our cat and our dog. Take the dog out, I start making coffee, I read my Bible. I've been doing this same rhythm over and over again for years. Probably, well, how long have we had dogs? Ten years we've had close. I've done it so often that when I wake up, when, when I wake up, the cat hears me and stands in front of our door, like, okay, it's time to be fed. Let's go. Lola starts Crouncing in her kennel, like, oh, dad's up. I guess we're going out. They're used to it. It's so regular. It's so much of a rhythm in our life. And as you think about that, we all have the same thing, don't we? How we start our day, how you drive to work. I mean, how many of you have like a routine going to work? You get up, you go down a certain way, you start, stop at a certain Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or McDonald's. You park at a certain spot. If someone's taking your spot, there's issues that are going to be paid. You know, we have the same routines that go into our life day in and day out. Athletes have it. That's how they become successful. They create rhythms or routines in their life or habits that they do over and over and over again. And one of the areas in our life that we really need those rhythms is in our spiritual life. I mean, we do it for exercise. I, I, I've been told by people who exercise that, that they create a routine, a habit in their life where they do the same thing, rain or shine, and if they don't create that habit, then they just don't do it. We need that in our spiritual life as well. And so over the summer, we've been talking a lot about those rhythms, what those rhythms should look like and can look like in our lives here in this church, what they could look like in our church and what they could look like personally. And so in June, we talked about MG3. These are kind of inward rhythms in our life, things that we should be pressing into our lives. And, and the first word in that was meet. That was the M. How are you meeting Jesus daily? What are you doing daily to meet with Jesus, to meet with God? What's your prayer life look like? What's your Bible reading. I'm not the devotional type life. I'm not talking study. I'm just, you know, general stuff. How are you meeting with Jesus every day? And then the first G was grow. How are you growing in community and in faith every week? What are you doing every week to grow within community, here at church, within your faith? How are you studying the Word? How are you hanging out together? What are you doing to grow? The next one was uh, Give. How are you giving to community every month? How are you giving back? How are you serving one another? How are you serving with your time, your talents, and your treasures? And then the final G we looked at in, in June was go. 
And it was this question, as you go, as you go out into the world, who are you blessing? Who are you blessing? And that led us to July, to this month, and part of August, as we talked about that concept of blessing others. What does it look like to go and bless others? What does it look like to live a life that's missional, that's following the mission of God? Jesus said, go and make disciples. What does that look like? And so we, we took the word bless and we're breaking it down into uh, some steps of things we can do to, to be more outwardly focused, to be more missional, to follow in what God is doing in the world. And the first one was the B. We looked at a couple weeks ago. Begin with prayer. And, and I challenged you, pick three people, three people that you know, neighbors, friends, whatever, people that you, that you can normally interact with, someone that you're going to run into, not someone on the other side of the world or some celebrity that you know wouldn't be cool if so-and-so met Jesus, somebody. And commit to pray for him. Just a really quick prayer. Every day. And so we started that. Last week we looked at the L, which was listen. We really get this idea is that as we share the gospel, it has a lot to do with talking. Like we need to convince people. But actually it starts with listening to people. And we talked a lot about that last week. How do we listen to someone? How do we hear their story? And I gave you the challenge with those three people, or even more so, ask the Lord for a divine appointment to interrupt you and just listen to someone. Today we're going to look at the next part of this rhythm, the E, my favorite part of this. And this is eat. If there's one thing that we all do, and some of us do better than others, is eat. I think I'm very successful at eating, if you can't tell by my physique. I, uh, I enjoy it a lot. Uh, I grew up in a leave-it-to-beaver kind of family. Um, I was an only child. We lived in the suburbs uh, back in the 70s. Um, prior to high school, um, my family had the same routine every single day. My, my dad left for work every morning. He drove and took the train downtown and had an office job. Uh, my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom until I got into high school. Our, our lives were organized by the meals that we ate in so many ways. Uh, I woke up in the morning and my mom made me breakfast, and then I took my school books and I walked to school. Now, I'm about to date myself really bad. I lived so close to my school that in elementary school and junior high, they let me walk home for lunch. So I would walk home and have lunch, which of course my mother made for me, and then I would go back to school. At the end of the day, my dad would come home about 5.30, and we would eat promptly at 6 o'clock. The day was routine. There were other uh, areas in our life that were the same way. My dad bowled on Friday nights. I'm saying I was about as leave it to beaver as you get. Um, and during Lent, this is terrible. For any of you who grew up Catholic, you know, during Lent you can only eat fish, right? Well, they would time it in such a way that my dad would finish bowling and go pick up a pizza and get home for midnight. And we'd have pizza after midnight because now it would be Saturday and could have sausage. And that was a normal Lent routine for us. Um, on Saturdays, every Saturday my dad took my mom out to dinner because she felt she cooked six days a week and one day a week someone else was going to cook for her. I did not normally go with. I was free 
And this is, you know, once again, I grew up in the 70s, and so things were a lot looser back then. They let me stay home with my stereo, basically. And uh, they would bring me home something after they went out to dinner. It was just what we did. On holidays, we're, we're absolutely dictated by food. It was all about meals. Who cooked what, when? My mom actually had a spiral notebook that every week she would pull out and she would plan every meal that we were going to eat in advance. What it was going to be. And she only had a small Rolodex, dating myself, of meals. But she would plan it out. And, and that's what our life was like for me growing up. But it's not like that anymore, is it? None of us live that way. Life has picked up speed for most of us. Work is no longer 9 to 5. Most places, both spouses work. After school activities for kids today are, are exponentially greater than what they were when I was a kid. After school activities when I was a kid ended at 3.30 or 4. And then that was the late bus came at 4 or 4.30. That's when everything had to end. Today they seem to go to 10 o'clock at night. Our days are no longer organized by the meals we eat. Instead, we try to fit meals into the chaos that our life has become. Tuesdays and Wednesdays for Cindy and I are absolutely insane. Uh, Tuesdays we have intercessory prayer here. And for some reason, uh, we keep on telling ourselves that Tuesdays are going to be our day off and we're going to break our day off with prayer but it never works that way. We're usually going in one or two or three different directions. So we're racing to get here for prayer on Tuesday nights. We don't have time to actually meet. And we're normally sitting back there eating a quarter pounder and fries. Because that's the only thing we could figure out how to do. Our kids are scurrying trying to figure out what they're going to eat. Wednesdays are even worse. Because Wednesdays, especially this summer with the women's Bible study, I work at my other job on Wednesdays. I don't get off till 7 o'clock. Cindy started a Bible study at 6. She had to uh, begin to head that way for 5. So they would grab something on the road. I would grab something on my way back from home, or uh, from work, and it would just be utter chaos. And, and something tells me that we're not the only family who lives that way. This is the norm. You grab food as you go, mostly processed, mostly fast. The question is, is this supposed to be the norm? Is this how we're supposed to look, live? As we look through Scripture, there seems to be this unusual focus on eating. Especially eating together. Think about how the Bible opens. It opens in Genesis. And where does Genesis take place? Where does God place Adam and Eve? In a garden. And what does He tell them? Tend the garden and eat. Just don't eat that one over there. That's the picture of how it starts. Later, when the exodus occurs and God pulls the Israelites out of, of Egypt and He tells them, you're going to remember this. How do they remember the exodus when they get released from Egypt when Pharaoh says, you can go? How do they remember it? With a meal. The Passover meal. And He gives directions, you know. Uh, if, if you ever hear around Lent, we do Passover meals uh, every couple of years. We'll probably do one this upcoming Lent if everything goes well. But it's, it's this interesting meal. It, it's, it's done in such a way to remind them that they're getting ready to leave, but they're going to eat it as a community as they're leaving Egypt. So, you know, 
sit down with your sandals on, with your, your uh, hand on your staff. Do not have leaven because you don't have time to let the bread raise because God's about to do something that's going to happen quick. But you're going to do it together as a community. There's an odd story later in Exodus. And this is just weird. This is just weird. When Moses and the elders of Israel meet with God on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up there with Aaron and the elders of Israel go up there with them. And in Exodus 24, verse 9, it says this, Moses and Aaron, Naab and Abahu, Behu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw, God, and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of um, something, lapis loosely, as bright as blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. They had dinner with God. God invited the elders up and He didn't just like show off that He was God. He, he fed them. And should that really surprise us? Because David, in Psalm 23, what does he say? You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In the middle of my suffering, Lord, you prepare a table so that you and I can dine together. The New Testament seems to double down on this idea. Where's Jesus' first miracle? Anybody remember? It's at a wedding. It's a party. What's his first miracle? They ran out of booze. Wow, that messes up some people's theology right now. I know that, all right? This wasn't like, you know, a very stoic thing. This is a party with people and food. Not only does he make wine, but we also have two occasions where Jesus multiplies bread and fish and has a dinner party for thousands of people. Many of Jesus' teachings occur at dinner parties. So much so that in Matthew 11, the Pharisees uh, accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Because all he does is hang out with people and eat and drink. The night before his crucifixion, Fiction. Jesus not only spends time at a meal with his disciples, but he tells them to use that meal to teach future generations about him. After the resurrection, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus actually shared a breakfast with the disciples on a beach. He cooked them fish, and that's how they knew he was Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, the two disciples that walked with Jesus, but not recognized him, didn't recognize him until they sat at a table and he broke bread with them. For the early church, that breaking bread piece, that, that wasn't just uh, you know, communion. That's what the life of the church revolved around. Their picture of communion wasn't just like a little wafer and a cup of juice. It was a full meal. They called them love feasts, which we can't call anymore because it has another connotation. But these were so big that in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually rebukes them for, for getting drunk at, at, at these meals, at communion. Can you imagine that? Me having to sit up here and tell you guys, hey, you got to cut back on the wine because it's getting out of hand. Communion's getting a little bit out of hand with you guys. No! None of us can imagine that. But that's what the early church 
That's how important this stuff was. When the Lord says Peter to the Gentiles and tells him to go to the Gentiles, he does it by lowering a cloth, a blanket, with different types of foods and animals, and he tells them, kill and eat. That was the God's way of saying that these animals are okay now. Go to the Gentiles. And finally, we started in Genesis. Consider how the Bible ends. Revelations ends with a banquet. Revelations 19.9. 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We think heaven's going to be like, you know, playing harps and floating in crowds. No, it's going to be like an all-you-can-eat buffet. There seems to be something important about eating. It wasn't just something Jesus did out of convenience. It seemed to have a purpose. And that should cause us to stop and pause for a moment. To reconsider the role that eating has in our personal life and what that role should be in our faith. But to really do that, I want to look at a story. And that story is in Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, turn to 19, otherwise it should be on the screen. This story immediately follows what we looked at last week in Luke 18. Remember Luke 18? Uh, Jesus is going to Jericho. The crowd, this massive crowd is around him. There's a blind guy in the corner who starts yelling at Jesus but everybody wants to ignore him, and Jesus stops, he gets interrupted, he turns, he sees the blind guy, he goes to the blind guy and asks the question that makes absolutely no sense, what do you want? He's a blind guy, okay, what do you think he wants? He wants to see. But Jesus takes the time to listen to him, to be interrupted and listen. So a miracle happens. So the crowd grows. Crowd grows, it gets bigger. Now it's following him into Jericho. In the middle of that crowd, there's this guy. He's curious. He's really curious. He's, he wants to know who this Jesus is, but he's a person who thinks he's on the outside. A person who thinks that he can't get close to God, that he can't get close to Jesus. But Jesus is about to change all of that. And he's going to change it all with a meal. Luke 19, verse 1 starts like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Tax collectors are interesting people in uh, the ancient Near East. Um, they weren't thought highly. Taxes were, were kind of interesting down there. The Romans uh, placed taxes on the people. They were forced to pay it. If they didn't pay it, it bad things would occur. And they, they hired these tax collectors to go and collect the tax. The thing is, they didn't pay the tax collectors to go and claim the tax. They told the tax collectors, just get creative on how you do it. And so they got creative on how they collected the tax. They just kind of upsided the tax. They put add-ons. They collected more than they should have. They were dishonest. They were 
thieves. They were cheats. And the people knew it. They knew it, and they despised tax collectors because of it. They thought they were traitors. These were Jewish people who were working for Rome. They thought they were traitors. Now, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector, the head honcho, the top of the pyramid. And he's loaded. And he's loaded out of purely dishonesty. This is someone that's far from God. Someone who many would assume would be unsavable. Someone who any good Jew would avoid. And someone who any good rabbi would condemn. But Jesus isn't just any rabbi. So he does something very different. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot and looked up and, and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he, come, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be with a guest of a sinner. Instead of rebuking him, Jesus goes to his house. He's going to his house to have a meal. Now, culturally, there are massive issues with this. Uh, the rabbinical law uh, dealt entirely a good chunk of the law in the book of Leviticus deals with food. What you can eat, what you can't eat. And, and the teachers of the law added things onto that. What you can eat, what you can't eat, and who you shouldn't eat with. And a chief sinner is someone you shouldn't eat with. See, when you have a meal with someone, there's this... this bit of intimacy that occurs. When you're eating with someone, think about it. Conversations go in certain directions. Things get intimate. Things get personal. Jesus is going to the house of a sinner. This is scandalous. And we see that in verse 7. What are they saying? He's, they're muttering about him. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. This isn't the first time Jesus had heard this. And this uh, wasn't the first meal with a tax collector for Jesus. Uh, in Matthew, uh, or, uh, Jesus has a, a meal with Matthew, uh, who is currently his disciple, but before his disciple was a tax collector. And he heard the same mummering. His response to that was, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what we see here with the story of Zacchaeus. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't preach a meal to Zacchaeus, or didn't preach a message to Zacchaeus, he ate a meal. And by doing just that, by meeting Zacchaeus in a place of intimacy and acceptance, not only did Jesus bring salvation to Zacchaeus, but he brought transformation as well. Look at what he says. I'm going to give away everything I have. I'm going to repay anyone that I, that I stole. His life is turned upside down 
just because Jesus took the time to be with them. And I think there's an example here for us to emulate. When we started this journey and put uh, by putting a list of people together that the Holy Spirit put on your heart to pray for, we asked Him, Lord, who, who do you want us to pray? And that's who hopefully you've all been praying for. We've been praying not only for the Lord, uh, as we pray, we're not only asking the Lord to bless them and transform them, but in the process of doing that, the Holy Spirit is beginning to transform each one of us. He's beginning to transform our hearts for them. We're beginning to get God's heart for them. Last week we talked about listening. Not preaching to them, but just listening to them. By taking time to hear them. But the problem is, listening to people is difficult. Especially if people aren't comfortable enough to talk to us. We live in a society that's divided, that's guarded. We're fearful about being attacked. We're not sure about who we can trust. So our conversations tend to be guarded. We don't want to say too much. We don't want to offend. We don't want people to attack us. You know, if people know you're a believer, there, there's some predisposed ideas that they have about what you, who you are and what you think and what you act and what you probably think about them. Try having a conversation in the midst of that. It's difficult. But here's the interesting thing. When we share a meal together, eating together begins to tear down those walls that we've built around ourselves and that people have built around themselves. And it helps us build trust. There's a video that, that uh, I found years ago that I think really demonstrates what that looks like. And I love this video and I just want to show it now really quick. So this commercial was made uh, to celebrate Canada's 150th anniversary. And they did, a, um, they did a study that showed that most Canadians uh, never took the time to eat a meal together. And so one of the things that somebody had the bright idea is to celebrate their 150th year of existence what if we took the time and ate together? When we eat together, we move from being strangers to friends. Uh, in their book right here and right now, Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford say that sharing meals together is, quote, one of the most sacred practices we have as believers. They even go as far as to say that if every Christian family invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we could literally change the world by eating. Jesus knew this, and I think he wants us to understand that too. If you knew that the only thing standing between you and a neighbor and a friend in eternal life was just eating dinner with them, would you do it? Would you do it? So that's the challenge I want to give you this week. Have a meal with one of the people on your list. And if that's not possible... Have a meal with someone you don't know very well. I'm hearing it already, but Joe, I don't like having people over. My house is a mess. 
I'm not a good cook. No problem, go out. I do a lot of breakfasts. I like going out for breakfast. If you know me, I've, and we're going to have a meeting, I'll probably invite you to breakfast. Or go to lunch. Or go have coffee. Just take the time. You don't need to feel like you need to prepare an extravagant meal for someone. It's not about where or what you're eating. It's about who you're eating with. But Joe, I don't know what to say. James and Brenda have this jar that they have in their, in their dining room, whatever you want to call it. And what it is, is it's a bunch of slips of paper that have conversation starters on it. And so if you've ever been to their house for a meal, they, they'll grab this jar and like pull a conversation and it's just some question. You know? I've got one for you. Ask them to tell you their story. One thing I've learned is people love to talk about themselves. Ask them to talk, tell you their story. Tell me about what you do for a living. Tell me about your family. Tell me your story. But Joe, I don't have time for this. Most of us eat two to three times a day. That's 21 times a week. Pick one of them. Just pick one of them. You know, Cindy and I are getting to that point in life where we don't like staying out late. We're becoming home buddies. We enjoy staying at home. We usually have to force ourselves to go out with people. But when we do it, we, in, we discover that we usually really enjoy it. That it gives us life. And that's the same challenge I give to you. So what would it look like if you set aside one or two meals every week to bless people by eating with them? Picture a world where people are sitting together, eating, talking, listening, connecting to one another, just like the I believe that's a picture that God wants to see from us. We're going to do, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Normally I say let's stand and pray, and we pray and I offer for ministry time, but that seems different for this time. Uh, we're going to do something different. It only makes sense that if we're talking about eating, we should close today, go ahead guys, and, and take communion together. Uh, now normally when we take communion together, we do it in those little cups that we can't for COVID. But COVID is not over, but we can do something different. It was around a table in the upper room that Jesus used bread to tell his disciples that his body would be beaten, stabbed, and hung on a tree. And he used the wine to represent the blood that would pour out, out of him. It was around a table that Jesus spoke words that became foundational to our faith. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in memory of me. Author and Bible scholar N.T. Wright wrote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. And through his sacrifice, Jesus invites us all to share a meal at his table. His table of grace, forgiveness, and blessing. So we're going to do it a little different today. So here's what I want. I want to make you all incredibly uncomfortable. Everybody up. 